As of 8 a.m. on Tuesday, the 19th of October, there have been 997 PCR tests for SARS-CoV-2 since the last report yesterday. Of these, there are three positive tests in travelers exiting quarantine and 14 positive tests in the community. For the two people that have been admitted to the Health Services Authority Hospital in Georgetown, they're both stable and not requiring any ventilator assistance. One of them has unfortunately been there since early September um, and continues to be stable. The other one uh, was recently admitted a couple of days ago and this person is in middle life and has um, a number of um, health issues as well. There have been a total of 110,629 vaccinations for COVID-19 disease given across the islands of which 55,900 Hello, sir. We are experiencing some technical difficulties, so sorry for the delayed start. Well, this you're watching the CMR COVID Spotlight series, and we are going to be talking tonight about the heart and COVID-19. So we're going to bring on our guests now, and um, we're going to try to play the public health update a little later on um, once we can get that video reloaded. But I would like to um, introduce our guest for tonight. We do have uh, Dr. Michael Emery, he is with Cleveland Clinic, and also Dr. Matt Martinez from the Atlantic Health System, and our own um, from Cayman, from Health City, Cayman Islands, Dr. Ravi Kishore. So um, I'm thinking that we might still be having a little bit of technical difficulties with bringing them up. Uh, Sandra is working hard in the background. Here we go. 
Perfect. We've got two of them on, and then we're waiting for uh, Dr. Kashore. But before we start off, let's go ahead and try to learn about who um, we have on. Uh, Dr. Emery, would you kind of just tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, what you do? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, I am a uh, medical cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic main campus uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm the co-director of the Sports Cardiology Center, which specializes in the care of competitive athletes and highly active individuals. In addition to that, I participate uh, and see patients in our hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy center and see general cardiology patients. So my um, intersection with COVID and the heart is much the same as Dr. Martinez with a lot of the consternation and controversy regarding myocarditis and athletes and guidelines for return to play. Thank you. And Dr. Martinez, how about you? So I have uh, similar characteristics to Dr. Emery. I am uh, at Atlantic Health System and Morristown Medical Center in Morristown, New Jersey. I'm a clinical cardiologist with um, imaging background in both echo and cardiac MRI. I run our sports cardiology program and I'm the co-director of the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy program. And I know Dr. Emery from our time as uh, both prior chairs of the sports and exercise section for the American College of Cardiology. And he and I do a lot of speaking nationally and internationally about athletes and COVID and cardiomyopathies and everything in between. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. And we're just um, working on, again, getting uh, Dr. Kashore in. We are still, unfortunately, plagued with a few technical glitches, but uh, we know they're going to get ironed out. But let's uh, go ahead and just press forward with some of the questions we have. I know there's a lot of people out there um, who might have heart issues and might be either afraid to get the vaccine or want to know some more information as well as, you know, covid is something that uh, we're going to definitely have to learn to live with. And so, you know, as, as physicians, we'd love to hear some of your thoughts on, on what's going on. So really appreciate you taking the time to speak to the, the Cayman Islands audience. And uh, so the first question is, how important is vaccination for uh, people with heart issues? Uh, uh, Dr. Martinez, you wanted to start off and then we could have Dr. Emery follow? Sure. You know, we've come a long way with our understanding of COVID-19 both the virus itself, its complications, and now, of course, with the vaccine, we're in a very different place than we've been before. And what I will say about the vaccine is that um, I believe it to be safe. I believe at this point we have a good uh, research experience as well as a both as a clinical experience utilizing it in millions of patients, of which I have seen many. Uh, there is clearly hesitancy regarding the risk of the vaccine. And what I tell people is that the risks of the vaccine do not outweigh the risk of the virus. And then I'm an advocate. Uh, we can get into the details about who might be at risk for those potential complications. But if you're over the age of 40, not only is the risk of the vaccine very low, but the benefits are very high uh, with regards to severity of illness, hospitalization and death, and, and even transmission of the, of the virus itself. If you've been vaccinated, you're in a much better place. You want to continue on, uh, Dr. Emery? 
Yeah, so I agree with Dr. Martinez. Um, you know, clearly the data has shown that those most at risk for complications from this virus are the elderly and those with cardiac issues, in particular uh, congestive heart failure, which unfortunately goes along with a lot of the comorbidities that accumulate as you get elderly. Um, those are the people that are hospitalized, that are in the ICUs predominantly that die from COVID-19 related infections. It may not be that it attacks the heart, but you're definitely at higher risk for complications and death. And that vaccine can certainly help lower your risk of contracting the virus or at least not being uh, put in an intensive care unit from complications from the uh, virus itself. So the benefits in that, in that population far, far, far outweigh any risks um, because, you know, death is, is a big concern um, and you're more likely to die from the coronavirus in that age population than you are to have a complication. Notice I said death versus complication from the virus or from the, from the vaccine. Gotcha. And I believe Dr. Kishore is in the backstage. So, Sandra, are you able to pop him up? Um, there he is. Sorry about those technical glitches. Uh, so uh, thank no you problem. for joining us. No problem. No problem. Perfect. So uh, just share about your role at Cayman Health City. Um, we got to know some of the other uh, cardiologists that we have on. And, and just for our audience uh, benefit, would you be able to share a little bit of uh, what you do at Health City? Uh, well, I'm a, uh, basically uh, what's called as an electrophysiologist uh, and a general cardiologist uh, at Health City Cayman Islands. I lead the department of cardiology there. Thank you. And then this, the question that we were asking the other uh, cardiologists we have on is, um, how important is the vaccine for people with heart issues, in your opinion? Well, I... I don't think uh, cardiac issues will specifically contraindicate uh, a, a COVID vaccine. Uh, I, and I don't think uh, having a cardiac disease predisposes them to cardiac side effects. So I don't think there's any such data and uh, it's a non-issue. Maybe the rare case report of somebody who's had a previous myocarditis uh bad myocarditis i'm not sure if there is any data on that uh, there's some uh some kind of uh, uh fluctuant uh, uh stuff in the literature but otherwise in my opinion i i don't think it's an issue and whatever experience we had in the well documented well chronicled experience in the cayman islands uh, we had a lot of cardiac patients who have had both the doses of uh, Pfizer vaccine, and we never have seen any problems in them. Thank you. And I do have a question um, because this is actually from a viewer who messaged me right before the show, and he has a very specific question about his heart issue. Um, he said, should a stroke victim who also has atrial fibrillation get the COVID-19 vaccine? Why or why not? And if the answer is um, yes, does it matter if um, what type of vaccine they got, whether it's the Pfizer vaccine or one of the other available vaccines out there. Um, we could start with uh, Dr. Emery if you want to take that one. So the short answer is yes, you should get the vaccine regardless of any underlying health condition that you have had. Um, there would be no contraindication from a cardiac standpoint 
to getting the COVID vaccine unless you had a reaction to the COVID vaccine already after the first dose, which is rare, but can happen. So there is really no underlying cardiovascular condition that would say don't get the vaccine. Period. Would you agree, Dr. Martinez? Yeah, you know, if you think about the risk factors related to stroke, those are the similar risk factors that poor tend a worse outcome with COVID-19, uh, the virus. So the vaccine is going to be important in that individual. So if we think about high blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, poorly controlled uh, risk factors, including obesity, th those are all going to be things that increase the likelihood that you're going to have a bad outcome if you get the virus. So I underscore what Dr. Emery said, that that, that individual, I would, I would suggest would really benefit from it if they had underlying lung disease. That would be a, a, another added benefit. Again, over the age of forty, unless you've had a really big complication with a virus, with a with this vaccine or another vaccine in the past, I would encourage you, all folks, that that this is going to be a an important thing to to uh, participate in. And, and, and Dr. Kishore, I know you kind of touched on it, but I just want to re-emphasize it because we do know locally there are some people um, spreading what I'm saying is disinformation, but I want you to confirm it, um, stating that they're seeing an increase of hospitalizations, especially at Health City, they said, um, from people getting blood clots and other things because um, they got vaccinated. Is there any truth no, at all no. to that rumor? Absolutely none, because if there's any cardiac issues, I would know about it. Uh, so absolutely no, I can uh, uh, dispel their fears on that issue. We have not seen any significant uh, increase in hospitalization due to vaccine-related uh, uh, issues, absolutely none. We had, uh, of course, very, very minor cases of uh, myocarditis uh, in, in patients with uh, after Pfizer vaccine, but it was very transient, and uh, they had their successful second doses too, without any problem. So if you look at the data on that, I, I, I think uh, what he said is spot on, right? The, the risk is really low. It's a bit of a moving target, but it, it's on the order of one or two people per 100,000 or more. In fact, recent studies suggest it's two or three up to five with the second dose per million. So compare that to the risk of potential viral complications, depending on who you are, there's some uh, so increasing compelling data that the risk is really low. And, and would you concur, uh, Dr. Emery? Yeah, I would concur. We, we just aren't seeing a rash of complications, true complications from any of the vaccines at this point. Um, there are rare cases reported in the literature. I have personally seen a couple cases of reactions to the vaccine. Um, but again, I'm a little biased at the Cleveland Clinic because we're a quaternary referral center. So people that have concerns end up coming here just because that's the Cleveland Clinic name. But in the community, we're just not seeing that. Statistically, if you look at just the risk of developing myocarditis from the vaccine that has been reported in the literature, you're still 200 to 400 times more likely to get myocarditis from the virus infection than you are from the vaccine. You got it. And tell me something, what are the types of heart conditions that could put someone at a greater risk 
of uh, serious COVID illness. And Dr. Martinez, do you want that one? Yeah, so I, I think we, I think I would include all of the cardiovascular risk factors, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes. Uh, but in particular, I think kidney failure is an increased risk, obesity, and, and of course, lung disease as it sort of interplays with cardiovascular disease. Um, I'd be hard pressed to find a reason not to take the vaccine in, in those who have any of the risks that, that I just mentioned. Um, and of course, any heritable uh, uh, conditions, including hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and, and any of those that are at increased risk for for um, arrhythmias. So I would say whether you have congenital heart disease or acquired disease, those, those conditions are enough that put you at greater risk by, as we said, hundreds of times compared to the vaccine. And I know there are, again, people who are saying, and, and I mean, when I say people too, there's sometimes even local medical uh, people stating that there's an increase in blood clots and other things that are likely linked to the vaccine. Um, as cardiologists and uh, as you see your patients, are you really noticing anything like that at all? Um, at, at any unusual rates? I'll start off with you, uh, Dr. Emery. No, I'm not seeing those. They aren't heavily reported in the literature. Um, we see those complications from uh, a native viral infection from COVID-19 of, of blood clots, pulmonary embolisms, DVTs, um, hypercoagulable states. But, you know, it, it still probably exists with the, the vaccine, but it's extraordinarily rare. And you would concur, Dr. Martinez? I agree. And if you, some of these are anecdotes that uh, then get really blown up through the media, where if you compare that to other uh, other medicines or other conditions that increase risk for clot, birth control pills with smoking, right? We know that that's a much greater risk for clot. So I think much of that is anecdote that gets grabbed onto by the media and can be kind of blown a little bit out of proportion co compared to what the data really shows. And Dr. Kishore, what about uh, your, your opinion on that? Uh, well, well, certainly with the mRNA vaccines, uh, uh, there's been a very little uh, clotting issues or hyperthrombotic states reported. There's been some reports with uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, but again, very, very rare. So uh, what we need to understand is that uh, the, the whole COVID scenario has been a very rare. And this number of vaccinations in such a short time has never, ever happened in our lifetime. So I guess uh, even the data uh, interpretation has to be in that context. And uh, uh, so everything is blown out of proportion. So the proportion is so small and the people who are benefited are so large. Uh, you have to look at it in that context. I mean, it's very obvious in the Cayman Islands when you're seeing with the community transmission, you're very rarely seeing any adults having uh, vaccinated people having this uh, the problem now. And you know, That's a really good point that um, he made in that the mass vaccination around the world at a small chunk of time 
those very small number of cases are all coming at once. So it, it looks like if you're only looking from the outside in that there's all these cases, but they're all happening at the same time in this giant pool of everyone getting vaccinated at once. So that then, you know, makes the anecdotes and, and things bubble up and, and level of concern easier for people to see, rather than if this vaccination was spread out over two years and we only see those few cases spread out more. Yep. And, and for those who are watching, if you have a question for any of the doctors, if you look at the bottom of your screen, you'll see a URL that you could type into your browser and you could call into the program and ask your questions directly. But uh, we're going to be taking a look over at some of your questions that are coming into the, the comments. So, Sandra, I'll turn it over to you and uh, let's have a look at some of the, the feedback that we're getting from viewers. OK, wonderful. So good evening, everyone. We have Nona, who has a question. She says, when does the efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine wean? I'm almost 50 years old and with no health issues and was vaccinated in February. Is it time for me to get a booster? Which one do we want to pick up? We're still learning about um, when things may start to wane. Some of that may depend upon whether you had infection and then got vaccinated afterwards. We think maybe about six, seven, eight months after your initial vaccination or completing your initial vaccination load, if you hadn't been priorly infected, that your immunity starts to wane some, it still doesn't go back to zero like it never had it before, but that's a reasonable time and, and the recommendations coming out now to start thinking about getting a booster. Yeah, so that's the time frame that I typically tell folks is that greater than six months, is when you should start to consider it based on who you are, at least uh, up in, in the Northeast where I am and certainly in the in the Cleveland area, we're headed into flu season. So this is the time when I'm getting my my flu, my flu shot as well. I, I've actually gotten both my booster and the flu shot in, in preparation for what's to come. So I think greater than six months, uh, that's when you should start to think about it. Okay, we've got a couple other questions. So Gloria has pulled some information from the um, VAERS report. And I think before we read what, what um, Gloria says here, can you tell us, I don't know who wants to answer this, but what is VAERS and um, how is the information reported? Dr. Martinez, do you want to take that one first? So I'm, I'm not sure that I can explicitly explain what theirs is, but this is a published study that was published earlier in the year that looked at um, all of the uh, data points and potential risk related to the vaccine. And it's an ongoing study and continues to collect data. And it has definitely shown uh, a, a lot about the vaccine. And, and quite honestly, it's been a lot of the safety data. Want to move on to another uh, question, Sandra? Yeah. So Gloria has posted some information here that says multifactorial analysis, including vaccines. So she's extracted this um, from, she gives the VAERS ID, which I have pulled up um, here on the website. So it just says National Vaccine Information Center um, from medalerts.org. Now, I don't know if that's the official, because um, the Vaccine Adverse Reporting System is actually VAERS.org. HHS.gov. Uh, so I can't verify that this VAERS ID that she's reported is the actual 
um, one that collects the data. There's also the CDC um, site. Yeah. So yes, I, I, I'm sure you know that's a government site. Theirs is the is the site we just talked about. It's the yeah. vaccine adverse event reporting system. That's mm -hmm. what theirs is, and it, it it collects ongoing data for large populations like this. And I, I don't know that specific ID number and, and and the details of that. But you're within data sets like this for reporting. You're going to find things like she's describing. And I'll go back to what we talked about earlier, which is in a, in a large group of folks who are vaccinated in a short period of time, you're going to see findings. And the question that we all have to ask ourselves, and I'll let the other doctors weigh in on this, is that a finding isn't necessarily, a single finding is not enough to outweigh the benefits. And, and that you're going to have anecdotes, and there's a difference between associations and causations. And we've gone through this with vaccines for 30 or 40 years. And uh, statistics can be made to look any way, you know, you, you do a multifactorial analysis. Uh, it all depends on so many factors, uh, what was used in the analysis. So I wouldn't just look at the final concluding line and take decisions like that. Mm -hmm. All right, we have Tyrone weighing in. So Tyrone says that the vaccine will kill you within two years. There's nothing that will stop it. You will die from multiple organ failure. Any of you want to chime in <laughs> on, on his uh, his opinion? I'm not sure there's much I can say about that. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> okay. Sandra, what else do we have? Um, Danielle has a more serious question. Danielle says, can someone that has antiphospholipid syndrome take the vaccine while on Clexine? I'm not sure if I pronounced those correctly. So I think uh, Clexane is uh, the trade name for low molecular weight heparin. So it, it sort of is related to whether or not there you can take these while on on uh, anticoagulants of any kind. I, I think I would generalize that. And, and my opinion is that you can, that there shouldn't be any, uh, there may be some site bleeding just like any other cut when you're on, when you're on blood thinners. I'm not aware of that being a contraindication. Okay, great. Thank you very much for that. Um, Josh says the states issued a policy to compensate government workers who get sick or injured as a result of the vaccine mandate. Um, coverage for injuring injuries resulting from COVID vaccine. What do we think about this new law? Do, do we know anything? I mean, I personally haven't heard of this, but do we know anything about um, some policy to compensate workers? Not familiar with that either. I'm not aware of it. Yeah, I'll do a quick online search to see what that's all about. Um, looks like we've gotten some interesting characters on the stream tonight. Carol says, yes, uh, and non-medical people looking at these sites is dangerous. Um, so I think she's speaking to um, the, um, the VAR site saying that when people look at that, perhaps they don't completely understand what that is. Can anyone give us an explanation? I think we've gone over this before, but basically the um you know vaccine adverse event reporting system takes any information after someone has been vaccinated so even if you get hit by a car it is my understanding that that would go in to vares as a death post uh vaccination 
And it doesn't mean that there's any relationship at all, but it's one way of collecting as much uh, data as possible for um, agencies such as the CDC to then be able to um, have a look if there's any sort of numbers popping up as a result of, of different things. I think you said it well, and it's run by the CDC and the FDA. Um, it is a passive reporting system. So it relies on individuals to send in reports to the CDC or the FDA. It's not designed to determine if the vaccine, you know, is a health problem or not. That's what randomized trials are for. And we've been through those. And now we have real life data um, that's been reported now with, with hundreds of thousands of cases um, and I, I do think it's dangerous uh, to put too much weight into individual uh, anecdotal reports in a passive system. Uh, and uh, all of us uh, that are on this, I'm, I'm certainly, I'm certain that the other doctors will agree. If you pull out the package insert for the medicines we we give to folks, uh, it's a shock, right? It, it, they report everything under the sun that could potentially happen with virtually every drug we utilize. Mm -hmm. I do have another question. What can COVID do to a healthy heart? So um, let's talk about some of the effects if someone got it and, um, you know, what, what could actually happen. Uh, Dr. Emery, you want to kind of take it and then we'll go to um, go through everyone? Yeah, so we have known for decades that a virus can attack the heart in certain susceptible people. We don't quite understand who is that susceptible individual, but we've known for decades that it can cause um, myocarditis and which is inflammation of the actual heart muscle and or pericarditis, which is inflammation of the sac around your heart. We think that it happens in about 1% of all viral infections. Um, so it's not new that viruses can attack the heart. Most of the time they're self-limited and don't cause long-term problems. There's the occasional person where it can cause serious problems, but they tend to be more rare and unusual, but they do happen. For COVID, our initial concern when hospitalized patients, which just, you know, think about it, this is just a year and a half ago, um, that there was a higher incidence of sort of these cardiac markers that we look at. So that had raised the overall concern that myocarditis and pericarditis may have been more prominent in this virus than other viruses. And that really raised a lot of people's concern. There was this initial study by Putnam in, in Germany published in July, June, June, I think, June or July of last summer that raised that possibility again. Now there was a lot of controversy with this Putnam study and there was actually a big um, vocal voice, particularly among physicians, that that study should have been retracted and not allowed to stay in the literature. But, you know, it was already out there um, and stays out there. In fact, it's one of the most commonly cited uh, articles in about every literature on COVID-related heart disease that you can imagine. Now that we've gone through this more, particularly with non-hospitalized patients, the incidence of myocardial involvement seems to be about what we'd expected with other uh, viruses. About 1%, a little less than 1%, depends upon a little bit how you define that. But we're not seeing the, the major adverse cardiac reactions that we had been scared about in the initial stage of this. We obviously still see it, just like we said before. There's a lot of people contracting this virus in a very short period of time. So the numbers look higher. 
but in the grand scheme of the number of people getting infected, we're not seeing this mass uh, rash of, of heart disease and heart failure and sudden deaths related to it. There's a bit of controversy about what's exactly causing then this cardiac involvement. Is it truly myocarditis? Is it has to do with microthrombi in the, the, the microvessels of the heart? We're still trying to figure that out with, with autopsy theories. Dr. Martinez, you want to add any value to that? I agree with it, with everything that was said, and and I I um, the, the initial concern of this, and and Mike and I were involved in that concern. We we were worried about athletes. We were worried about um, about whether or not it was going to be a problem or not. So we decided to systematically review it, which is the the publication that we we published a few months ago. Um, illustrating the low prevalence. And, and, and I, I think we're, as I st stated when we started, we're in a much better place than we were before with data to now help guide us through this. And we can compare it to numbers that folks understand, one in a million, one in a hundred thousand. Talk about, you know, chances of getting a clot in the one to two to 300,000 range. So is it really causation or is it just related to, to life itself? And, and, um, I think that, as stated, the benefits of the vaccine greatly outweigh the risk. Dr. Kishore, what about you? Uh, well, as uh, all of us recollect, uh, you know, the very first patient, uh, COVID patient we had uh, was at Health City. He, was, he had come in with myocarditis, an Italian cruise passenger. So, I mean, that's when, uh, uh, in fact, it was a rare diagnosis at that time. But, uh, uh, well, uh, from, we know from then that it, it can produce myocarditis. But uh, as it was mentioned, it happens with all viral illnesses. And uh, the clustering of a large number of cases is actually magnifying any small data here. I do got a question about what, you know, say someone gets COVID and it does develop some heart issues. Um, is that some type type of a heart issue in most cases that can be repaired somehow, or is it permanent damage? Um, Dr. Emery, you want to start off? Well, at this point, if you get myocarditis from COVID, there's no overt treatment, no medication that we know will, will reverse it. Um, oftentimes these are cases that sort of resolve on their own, the milder cases, um, meaning that, you know, your body does the job of fighting off the infection, it, the, the inflammation that it's caused calms down, and there are no long-term uh, sequelae or side effects from it. Um, there's a, a rare bird uh, that can have long-term sequelae. Predicting up front who that person is going to be, we, we can't do. It's only a matter of, of time, uh, more than anything else, that will tell us. Dr. Martinez, you would agree with all of that? I, I would. Now, the only caveat would be that we do know that if you have cardiac involvement and you're in the hospital, that your risk is higher. So uh, everything that we said that by and large the myocarditis goes away, but we know that that phenomenon that I just mentioned, that if you have a elevated troponin or evidence of myocardial injury during your hospital stay, that increases your risk in COVID. It increases your risk in virtually every other condition. So if you've got a blood clot from uh, some other mechanism, if you've got 
uh, an injury post-surgery, even if it's minor surgery, if you've got vascular disease or, or some other uh, a heart attack, the, the, the higher the, the troponin or the damage to the muscle, the higher your risk. But we do think that in general, the vast majority recover and recover well without long-term sequelae. You have to be evaluated. There are specific tests you can use to look to see if you're in the higher risk population and whether or not an additional therapy would be needed. But by and large, this is recoverable. So Dr. Martinez and Dr. Emmy, both of you have involvement in sports medicine. You guys do um, a lot of stuff for athletes as well. I got a question about, are you seeing any of your patients who are relatively healthy having problems with COVID? And, and Dr. Martinez, I'll start with you. We are. There's, it's clear that um, COVID can be, even in, in the mild condition, the asymptomatic, you happen to contract this because a family member or you're exposed to it, and we find that you have COVID. Or if you have mild symptoms or even moderate non-cardiopulmonary symptoms, the vast majority do very well. But there are folks who have four to six weeks of prolonged symptoms, and they can be um, exercise intolerance, prolonged fatigue, sometimes a fast heart rate at rest. Again, the vast majority, even in that group, recover very, very well. And then we're still better understanding the, the entity that we've known for years and years, right? The post-viral syndrome that comes after a virus of any kind. We're seeing that with COVID-19, and it's often referred to as quote, long haulers, as well as uh, what's now being re referred to as the PASC or the post-acute sequelae of COVID. That's sort of the new term for this. And that includes conditions like POTS, and I'll, I'll let others weigh in on that. But we are definitely seeing it, but it's, it's still probably the exception in my mind compared to the, the, the vast majority recover without an issue. Dr. Emery? What's your experience been like so far? Yeah, it's pretty similar to Dr. Martinez. You know, I've evaluated just tons of athletes uh, post-COVID. A lot of them are, are mandatory evaluations that the university or their sport league has mandated. And we're just not seeing a lot of cardiac involvement. Yes, there are the rare exceptions to those cases, you know, even Dr. Martinez published a nice study in, in March of this year out of all the major sporting leagues in the United States. And the instance is about 0.6%. Um, and I think that was single digits in terms of the total number of gross cases that, that they had. Um, and all of them recovered. Um, there have been now studies and upwards of about 5,000 published athletes um, of an incidence rate of a little less than 1% with zero adverse outcomes, even the ones that continue to play through it or return to play afterwards with no adverse outcomes at this point. Obviously, the time frames are still short, um, but there's been no signal even of, of harm in those regards. Um, most of the athletes that I see with concerns of, of COVID cardiac involvement, we find other reasons for it. Deconditioning playing a major role here because a lot of the athletes are told not to exercise for a prolonged period of time. And, you know, when you're an elite level athlete and you don't work out for two, three weeks, you lose some fitness um, and you have to take some time to go back to that and not and realize that, you know, if I took three weeks off, I can't hop back in like I never miss a day. I got to take the time to regain that fitness level. And some people are a little anxious to get back 
um, and we have to ease them back in and, or reassure them that it's not COVID involvement. It's just you're a little bit out of shape compared to what you were when you got the infection, and now we have to build you back up again. Gotcha. Uh, Sandra, do we have anything else in the comments that uh, we, we have not gotten to yet? Um, I do have someone from WhatsApp who was saying that uh, their husband has a major congenital heart defect that puts them at an increased risk of dying from COVID. And when he took his vaccine earlier in the year, um, he was an immunosuppressant, which gave him about a 20 to 30% protection from the um, vaccine. So they're wondering, should he be considered sort of a priority group for getting that booster shot? Yeah. Yes. The recommendation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think he's the group in particular that I spend time making sure that we cover this, that if there, he, he sounds like he's at higher risk, the immunocompromised group can even have a more blunted response to the vaccine. So mm -hmm. I think the, the booster in that group is, is important. Then we talk about, you know, other safe, safe measures, right? The, uh, masking, hand washing, isol you know, some, some measure of, of um, separation from those who might be at risk. And then of course, vaccinating family members around them, those that are in contact with him, uh, serve him well by being vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And the, the reality is most immunocompromised patients were already doing a lot of that anyway. I mean, they know that they're at risk from any infection. So they had already practiced social distancing, staying away from sick people, hand hygiene, and even masking in a lot of cases well before the COVID pandemic in order to lower their risk. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Um, I think that's all I've got at the moment, Kev. Gotcha. Well, I do have a question. I'll start with Dr. Akashur. Um, we know, again, there's a lot of parents. Uh, we want to make sure that those who are eligible children would get vaccinated as well. And those parents who might fear the myocarditis um, link, especially for younger males, what are you going to, uh, what are you telling parents who have that fear? I, I know we've kind of highlighted it before, but I don't think we could highlight it enough um, about the benefits. But uh, what would you tell those parents? Well, uh, see, I will be very sympathetic to their concerns, of course, and uh, present them the available data now, which is fairly robust, uh, uh, that the incidence is very low. And if you, uh, even if uh, they're unlucky to be the the lower percentage who develop the myocarditis, it's self-limiting and uh, uh, never really leads to hospitalizations or problems. Uh, so this is the one way we talk to them. But at the end of the day, uh, they're their children and uh, they will not look at the ch their children as their statistics, but their own uh, kids, right? So um, this is the data we have to present it and allow them to take their decision. Uh, at the same time, uh, there are some uh, countries which are allowing uh, only a single dose of uh, mRNA vaccine for uh, uh, children. So I guess there is some kind of a uh, uh, different directional advice that's coming in the lay press and the regular data. I don't know what my uh, co-panelists opine on that, uh, the single dose uh, mRNA vaccine versus this. Just uh, recently, uh, the Nordic countries 
have uh, uh, advised against Moderna vaccine in uh, in preference to Pfizer vaccine in people below 30 years. So I, I guess uh, that the data is also uh, not too clear. Uh, but as of now, we can be reassured that the incidence is very low. And if it does happen, it is self-limiting. And uh, with Pfizer vaccine, at least what's available for us in the uh, island, it seems to be preferable to the other mRNA vaccine. Mm -hmm. But all this is uh, information in progress. And I don't know what my co-panelists would opine on this. We have Sari who has a question. She says, is it safe for persons with um, erotic stenosis and issues with the mitral valve to take the vaccine? No problem at all. They can. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Okay. So, and are there any, um, sorry, Kevin, people who have heart disease, do they present with different symptoms uh, if they are COVID positive? Is there different things that they should be looking out for? Dr. No, I think the, 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 it doesn't matter if you have cardiac conditions or not. They may be more profound. They may be mm -hmm. more brisk or um, or maybe severe earlier. But the symptoms, I don't think, vary uh, whether or not you have a cardiac condition or not. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, blood pressure, high blood pressure, which um, I think a lot of people in the Cayman Islands may suffer from, that as well as diabetes obviously can have... Um, you know, negative impact on the health of the heart as well. Uh, any major concerns there about those being, you know, additional comorbidities um, from the perspective of vaccination? Obviously, you'd still encourage those persons to get vaccinated. Yeah, I, I guess what I'll say is on the contrary. I think that's the risk. Yeah. Those are the groups that I, I, I worry about more. That's the group that I think mm -hmm. will benefit the most. They have the highest risk with the native virus. So the vaccine will be helpful. To, to that group with cardiovascular risk factors. And I, I guess what I'll say about the, you know, the, the, to get back to where we were a little while ago with the vaccine is that it, it's a, the myocarditis is a rare complication, but there's uh -huh. clearly a signal in younger men. If you look at the data, men under the age of 30 seem to be a little higher risk. So what I'm telling folks is that they usually present within a week after a vaccination. And if you suspect that, then there's a a well-documented algorithm for how to sort that out no matter where you live. And then um, the vast majority, as stated, will will have no long-term sequelae. I've not seen any uh, complications beyond the first week of symptoms with regards to the vaccine. And then I, I talk to them about this signal. And if they have a family that might be at higher risk, if the individual is at higher risk, if um, they live in a household where others are at higher risk, that's a group that I still think benefits despite that small increase in signal in, in, in those under the age of 30. So I think under the age of 30, the men in particular, that, that's a conversation where you can really talk about the risks benefits. But again, over the age of 40, boy, it, especially if you have cardiovascular risk factors, I'm in full support. Mm -hmm. We um, actually had a very interesting case on island where someone said that they believed that they had myocarditis 
Um, they wouldn't go to the health experts at HSA, at um, Health City, but um, they were describing some of the symptoms, including um, what sounded like heart palpitation. So they described it as, you know, they'd be sitting down watching TV and then all of a sudden their heart would start racing. Uh, what are the symptoms of myocarditis and why would you want to go or how is that even confirmed by a physician? Of course, why would you want to make sure that a physician um, is the one to diagnose that? So unfortunately, the symptoms of myocarditis tend to be somewhat nonspecific, meaning that there mm -hmm. isn't any one single complaint that's going to clearly say this is myocarditis and it can't be anything else. Right. Um, palpitations could be myocarditis in the right setting, but palpitations and nothing else probably is unlikely to have been myocarditis. And palpitations is the sensation of feeling your heartbeat. Those are common complaints. You know, I think my co-panelists will concur that that's a very common reason why people will come see a cardiologist for decades that we've, we've seen and, and known that. Um, you know, the constellation of things that would start to tip us one way or the other is a preceding viral illness mm -hmm. that then accompanied by chest pains, chest tightness, excessive shortness of breath, fevers, myalgias, um, exercise intolerance as sort of the, the baseline. And then the fulminant myocarditis are the ones that often present sort of in like shock. Uh, into emergency departments. Um, those are rare, but can happen. Um, so it really takes a clinical level of suspicion in the right setting to suspect myocarditis. And then we start looking at, at testing, do the laboratory studies, these inflammatory markers we can check in the blood start to become abnormal. Do we see abnormal troponins in the blood, which can also be from other things besides myocarditis, but we start mm -hmm. to piece that piece of the puzzle together with the history and the, a prodrome, we call it, of a viral illness, and then we can start doing more testing like echocardiography and cardiac MRI if those are available to start to confirm those a little bit more. All right, we do have a few questions that have come in. Um, so Priscilla wants to know, uh, this is very specific, if someone's on life support before, nothing to do with COVID, can they take the vaccine? Yes. I, I don't think that you're going to find a pre-existing condition that anyone can ask us tonight that's going to be a contraindication taking the virus or taking, the, excuse me, taking the vaccine unless you've had a reaction to the vaccine. And that's it. If you've been on life support in the past, you're at higher risk to develop complications if you get the virus. So having the vaccine will help keep you off life support again. 100%. Yeah. Okay. Lavona says, um, I think she might mean to say my mom is 70, 72 and was one who didn't want to take the vaccine and she decided to go. Uh, I took her myself and she has high blood pressure and takes her meds for it. After she took the vaccine, she's now stated that she only has taken her meds three times since. Her pressure is doing really good. Is this something that actually helps? Coincidence? <laughs> Yeah, uh, the vaccine is not going to lower her blood pressure. Uh, that would be an added benefit we'd all love to see, but we've not uh, we've, we've not realized that. Uh, my guess is there's still some of those medicines in her bloodstream, and mm -hmm. they're 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 keeping her under control. Uh, uh, she should talk to her doctor, but uh, I would suggest she go back on the meds she was on before. Yes, and I think that um, this isn't directly 
related to heart disease per se, but blood pressure medication is one of those things because it is a silent killer. I mean, I've been told this at a, by a physician at Health City that um, even if, you know, you're on like a low dosage of um, amlodipine or whatever, you know, you're taking your five milligrams every single day. It's not something that you want to stop just because you've noticed that your blood pressure is under control, that in fact, it can have a very dangerous side effect of becoming um, very much out of control. And then the medication is going to be that much more difficult to um, bring it back under control. So you want to take it as prescribed, in other words. Yeah, it's a really great point. And early on, we were worried about ACE inhibitors, specifically a great blood pressure and heart failure medicine and its counterpart, uh, angiotensin receptor blockers or ARBs. Uh, and we wondered if that would, if they should be stopped in those who get COVID or are sick with COVID. And uh, there's now well documentation, good studies that show that that's not the case. So I agree with everything you just said. Don't mm -hmm. stop the medicines. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, thank you very much for those questions and answers, of course, Kevin. Yeah. Now, so let's move into closing comments. We're almost at the one-hour mark, and I want to have a little uh, quick chat with you after uh, our doctors leave us. But let's start off with uh, Dr. Kishore. Um, what closing comments do you have? for the people of the Cayman Islands? Uh, I would encourage uh, uh, the rest of the people who are not vaccinated to just go and get the jabs. The incidence of complications uh, is extremely low and whatever misinformation you are hearing is uh, are unfounded and we have a, a robust data collected from across the world on the vaccine safety and efficacy now. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And Dr. Martinez. I agree with that. I, and I, I think uh, you're, I think there's a, because we have access to information so readily now, anyone has the ability to speak and can, can convey their opinion, but truly the data is in strong support of vaccination. And what we're seeing now more and more, and this is not published data, the, the, we have, friends and colleagues around the country who are telling us their ICUs are filling up and they're not filling up with vaccinated folks. They're filling up with unvaccinated folks. So it is in your best interest to be vaccinated, uh, especially if you're over the age of 40. Talk to your doctor about who you are and who your family might be. Uh, if you think you might be at risk for complications from the vaccine, but by and large, you are going to be best served with the vaccine compared to not. Thank you for that. And uh, Dr. Emery. Yeah, I would agree with my co-panelists. Uh, you know, COVID is real. Um, we've all seen it swamp our hospitals um, and people die from it, including now younger people. Um, you know, it struck home for me even when a friend of mine uh, who was in his mid thirties, uh, died from COVID about a month ago. He didn't have serious comorbidities other than being mildly obese. Um, but he still succumbed to this virus. So it can affect anyone. Be afraid of the virus. Don't be afraid of the vaccine. Well, thank you very much. Sandra, I just believe you said you had one last question. One on. final question from sure. Priscilla. Uh, she says, if someone's allergic to a lot of medication, is it safe to take the vaccine? So what sort of allergies, um, if people know they have allergies, you know, what sort of allergies would they um, have or should they be concerned about when it comes to the mRNA vaccine in particular? 
So you have to talk to your doctor about which vaccine, and it's usually not the actual um, molecule that in the vaccine that creates your immunity. It's the other stuff, the suspension that it's uh, suspended in and dissolved in. So it's the other ingredients that you may have an allergy to. You just have to go through your allergy list um, um, with someone that can take the time to then look at what else is in the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, agreed. Okay. Agreed. All right. Well, thank you so much. Wee Wee says, great show tonight. Thank you so much. Appreciate it so much. I, I, I think you were just trying to say something, Dr. Martinez. I didn't want you to miss out on saying what you might want to add. No, I think you're closing, Kevin. And all I, all I want to say is that I, I want to volunteer Dr. Emery and I to do a repeat show on site in Cayman Island at your discretion. Uh, we, <laughs> we, 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 we will fully participate in any of these activities on site. Yes, yeah, it's coming up well, on winter in the, yes. uh, of the Midwest. So hey, yeah, and we're hoping for some good news soon on the borders reopening. Um, vaccinated people will definitely be in a priority category, so we will certainly let you all know. Absolutely, we'll definitely stay in touch, and really appreciate you all taking the time to uh, come on our show for the little old Cayman Islands. You guys are in some big states, and we're down out in the Caribbean Sea. Um, a little, it looks like a little smudge on on a on a um, map. So really appreciate you uh, really taking that time out um, and sharing the information. I know I've seen a lot of people who had concerns who have cardiac issues, and so just wanted to make sure that we're providing the facts to them because we do know that the disinformation is loud and it's 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 really hampering some of the efforts to really protect lives. Uh, just to, before we close. Um, I will, will tell you the Cayman Islands, if you guys didn't know, is doing extremely well with the vaccination rate. We're right around almost 80% fully vaccinated. So one of the best in the world. But, you know, that we still got another 10% um, at least to probably get where we're a bit more comfortable and 20% to, to really get um, that, that, that trophy. But, um, but we're going to do our best to spread facts and so people could make their informed decisions. Um, and uh, we're just going to go from there. We're doing the best we can to, again provide experts like you to share your experiences. Thanks for fighting the good fight, Kevin. We, we appreciate it. Thank you, doctors. So Sandra. Yes, sir. We can pull up that video now. So thank you again to Dr. Emery, Dr. Ravi, and uh, Dr. Uh, Martinez. It's sort of yeah. cut off. There. It's a very long name. <laughs> but uh, thank you guys so much for joining the program this evening. And Kevin, we're actually at um, 79% for the first shot. And uh, we've got some new results in today's reporting from Dr. Lee. Here we are. Got it. As of 8 a.m. on Tuesday, the 19th of October, there have been 997 PCR tests for SARS-CoV-2 since the last report yesterday. Of these, there are three positive tests in travelers exiting quarantine and 14 positive tests in the community. For the two people that have been admitted to the Health Services Authority Hospital in Georgetown, they're both stable and not requiring any ventilator assistance. One of them has unfortunately been there since early September um, and continues to be stable. The other one uh, was recently admitted a couple of days ago, and this person is in middle life and has um, a number of um, health issues as well. 
there have been a total of 110,629 vaccinations for COVID-19 disease given across the islands, of which 55,905 are first doses, and this represents 79% of the 71,106 estimated population. 53,572 people have completed the two-dose course, and that represents 75% of the population. 1,152 people, representing 6% of those over 50, have had a third or booster dose. Please can I remind everybody to make sure that they use um, masks when in indoor spaces, attend to hand hygiene, uh, respiratory etiquette, which means in, sneezing into your sleeve or into a tissue and then disposing of that, and distancing as well. It's really vital that you do these simple things to help reduce the risk of transferring or transmitting uh, this coronavirus. Beginning the 10th of October, residents across the Cayman Islands will be invited to participate in the 2021 Census. What is the Census? Simply put, the Census is a headcount of every person living in the Cayman Islands. The population count and data are protected and authorized by the Statistics Act. The information is confidential and cannot be shared with any law enforcement agencies. Your response helps guide business, social, and economic planning for the future of our islands. The 2021 Census will inform decisions on how millions of dollars are allocated for roads, schools, hospitals and healthcare clinics, fire, emergency response services, and other programs. Census enumerators will visit your household, ask a few questions like, how many people live in your house, including their age and sex? Every person counts, no matter who you are or where you live. So have your say in the 2021 Census.